City University Television presents The American Theater Wing Seminars Working in the Theater This seminar, Performance A warm welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. They are now in their 30th year and coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Here, professionals are brought together by the American Theatre Wing for these seminars to help provide an insight to what it's like to work in the theatre. Today's seminar is with six leading performers. We hope to learn not only about their preparation for a career in the theatre, but also about the drive, passion, and temperament needed to survive in the theater. I'm Isabel Stevenson, chairman of the board of the American Theater Wing. So now, let me introduce our moderator for the seminar, distinguished television interviewer and critic, and a member of the Wing's advisory committee, Pia Lindstrom. Pia. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you. We have a wonderful panel today that will tell us a lot about the passion of the theater, what it's like to work in the theater. With me today, Tova Felcher, who has played so many women in the theater, so many people. You are a woman of many faces. And Mark Kudish, leading man, musical. <laughs> sure you. <laughs> exactly. Rebecca Luker, one of our great leading ladies of the musical theater. There are very few, and uh, you are treasured. Dennis O'Hare, well, take me out. Baseball player. Do you feel like a baseball player? No, I feel like an accountant. <laughs> I feel like an <laughs> We'll get back to that. Susie Kurtz, two-time Tony Award winner, uh, one of our most accomplished actresses, and Louis J. Stadlin. Been in so many Neil Simon plays. Five. Five. Now you are the consummate yeah. Neil Simon uh, actor. Tell him that. <laughs> well, I mean, is it that he calls you specifically or Every writes ten for years. you? Every ten years. <laughs> well, that's a I didn't know him. But no, I knew him, and I did the Sunshine Boys in 1970, the female version of The Odd Couple in 1980, <laughs> Laughter on the 23rd Floor in the 90s, and then a show called uh, 45 Seconds from Broadway, which... Uh, I think that was the shortest of all the Neil Simon plays. 45 seconds. 45 seconds. <laughs> but is it knowing his kind of language? Is there something in knowing the author's <coughs> language that is Yes, uh, I'm very comfortable with his vernacular. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's an urban Jewish vernacular. And, uh, uh, yeah, he, he, he speaks to me. I don't have to. We have, a, we have a kind of a creative shorthand with one another, which is very nice. I want to get back to Tova here, because now you're playing Gold in My Air. Right. Which is a stretch, mm -hmm. I have well, to say, Tova. First of all, she was from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. <laughs> That's where she was brought up. <laughs> Very so. interesting, her speech pattern. Um, as we mentioned before, before we went on, your mom, uh, Ingrid Bergman, did a wonderful job uh, playing Gold in My Air and won the Emmy for it 
the fact that Golda did sound sh like she was from Scandinavia <laughs> by the end of the movie. <laughs> it didn't hurt the awards. She still got the award. I won the founder's state producer. You know, right? Hey, don't make it. So, having seen your mother, who really captured the soul of mm. the prime minister, I went immediately to Milwaukee to get the speech pattern. <laughs> so, but I thought that was very interesting that she was, though she was born in Kiev because of her father's permission to be a carpenter in the city. Jews were not allowed to live in the, within the city limits at that time. It's, yes, oh. welcome. Oh. Welcome to the world. Yeah. Oh. And oh. Uh, this was in the, in the 19th century, mm. but she was born in Kiev because her father was a uh, highly skilled carpenter, so he was invited into the city. Mm. When he left to make his way in America to bring the family out of Russia, they were relegated back to Pinsk. And from mm. Pinsk and the small village around it, uh, they then went to America. When I asked my grandfather where he was from, he never said he was from Minsk. He said he was from Minskabernia, in the district mm. of, because oh. they, uh, they were outside of the city limits. In all events, they went to M Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and that's where her speech <laughs> pattern developed. So you got the speech, though, but there's something about playing people who everybody knows, or uh, a living, real living person. You've done it a couple of times, Catherine Hepburn. And I think you played Groucho Marx. I did a long time ago. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, has anybody else played a little Susie played Lillian Hellman. Oh, Lillian yes. Hellman. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, you did. played Lillian Hellman. Mm -hmm. Susie, when you play somebody that people already know and that you've seen photographs, do you try to imitate the walk or the look? It's daunting, you know, because people do have a certain image of, of someone like. Well, more than an, an image of Golda, <laughs> but of Lillian, they have an image of her toward the end of her life, kind of the gravelly voice, and you know. And I knew that there was really no way I could I could actually imitate her. And Jack O'Brien, our director, said, you know, we haven't hired you and Jerry Jones for your mimicry talents. Um, so, and we were kind of doing Nora Ephron's vision of Lillian Hellman and Mary McCarthy. But I did, you know, watch a great many tapes and listen to and. Just the essence. I like to just get the essence and not do an impersonation so much. Well, when you say the essence, what is the essence of a person? I mean, I don't know what that the means. The impression means. Means. What's It's essence? like a Monet thing. And it's, it's uh, also from the inside. I mean, an actor. It's from the inside. Uh, uh, Strasberg said, you're stuck with the character and the character's stuck with you. So in that mm. sense, it's a seamless marriage between our personage, our beingness, and the beingness of another person. I mean, there's a reason Kate Hepburn stood the way she stood. I mean, she was from a certain part of the country, and she believed in certain things, and that's what, how it would manifest itself. So you got into you got into the spine of her, from which came other manifestations, yes, exactly. and the concentration. When I play Golda Meir, believe you me, I'm not thinking of the accent. I'm looking in, I'm looking in your eyes, and I'm talking to you mm -hmm. the way she would do it. She was like the rock of Gibraltar. <laughs> so that's what you mean. You stay, uh -huh. you stay in. And in. when I played Groucho Marx, I was 23 years old. I had no <gasps> acting chops at all, mm -hmm. and I was very excited to get the, the job. But I was petrified that I would give a superficial rendering of Groucho Marx. I saw myself in the audience going, why this guy? I could go home and watch Night at the Opera. So what I discovered after attempting to mimic him was that he had a philosophical point of view. And the philosophical point of view was that he was, for me, this is, was my key, was that he was a man who was constantly looking up to God and saying, 
why is everything so unfair? Why is everything so <laughs> yeah. inequitable? And it's a complaint that made him a philosophical comedian. And then all of a sudden, my body language kicked in so that I realized you didn't, it wasn't about the back. It was the break in the man's body because he was like this all the time. I've had the, the lovely privilege of playing serial killers, lots of them. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, your look. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, it's, uh, about you I'm Irish, what can I say? Um, but, you know, the, um, I played uh, Nathan Leopold, Leopold and Loeb. Um, I played Richard Hauptman from um, the Lindbergh kidnapping case. I played Richard Speck. Who um, was a. Perhaps <laughs> 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 always wears the room, that one. I don't know what yes, that yes, is. Yes. Nurses. <laughs> um, but, um, and the weird thing about playing serial killers or any kind of murder is that, you know, <laughs> you, you, ha get into you have to get into their mind. You have yeah. to figure out, you know, there's a logic there, there's an internal logic. And I was playing, um, I was playing Richard Speck, actually, and there was um, all these nurses in the room I had taken kidnap. And, um, and uh, at one point, I realized that they all have brown eyes. And I, as the actor, saw that, and at the same time I kind of went, ooh, that's really weird to have noticed that on any level. And to have thought, that's suddenly, that's his internal logic. Who knows why, but this man went around the world, he went brown, 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 brown. And that's what we collected. And it was, and then there was a, a story about Dennis Nilsson, who's a British serial killer, and about Jeffrey Dahmer. And I refused to read anything in the papers because I thought, I don't need to know any more about these people. Mm -hmm. I don't want to know any more about these people. I don't want to think like these people. I don't want to try to put myself in their shoes. And I've, I've turned down roles because I don't want to go there. I don't want to mm -hmm. go into that person's mind because my job as an actor is to be sympathetic. I must find a way to understand them. Not to approve, but to yes. understand. And that, that means sympathy or empathy. I have to feel like them. I have to think like them. I have to use their logic. I have to feel their feelings. And that's not a happy place to be when it's someone who is a serial killer. I mean, but the great thing about playing any kind of villain is that, you know, villains are the great characters yeah. because there's always a dissonance. Mm -hmm. A villain doesn't think he's doing bad. No. No. He right. always thinks he's he doing thinks good. He's, doing and he's got steely logic, you know, I must do yes. this. And you, you have know? to find the good in the bad character Absolutely. somewhere, don't Absolutely. you? There's always yeah. a moral struggle in a villain. Right. I mean, know? Hitler was our, mm -hmm. our greatest uh, uh, cleaning lady. You just want to clean up. It happened to do with Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, Any painted. Yeah, you know, Any about painted. 14 million people. But he just want to clean the planet, you know, Re get rid of the dust. Rebecca, you, know? you always oh. play, you know, the ingenue, the leading lady, the good girl. Do you play bad girls? <laughs> well, it, uh, speaking of your mother, I, I knew we were going to get her back into the conversation. Oh. I, I, I'm, I was recently joined the cast of Nine, and I'm yes. playing uh, a woman who was modeled after uh, Claudia Cardinale, yes. the, the, the Italian actress. And, and like Susie said, I just wanted to get the essence of the mm -hmm. accent uh, because I, don't, I didn't want to you know, really make it, you know, really thick accent because, you know, no matter what you do, somebody's right. going to say, it's the accent is bad or it's not good enough or whatever. But anyway, so, so I sort of got the essence of the accent and, and I was reviewed the other day and he, he likened my accent to uh, sounding more like Ingrid Bergman oh, than Claudia Cardinale, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I took as a great compliment. And I thought, oh, great, that's wonderful. I like that one. Anyway, so... So anyway, we have a connection. Oh, that's good. Um, what was your first question? Quite, oh. no, ba ba not playing because good girl. Just, it's partially well, the way you look, so I imagine well. when people are casting, uh, this is... Or the way I sing, probably. Or maybe the way you, know, you sing. That's uh, that also, because it's so unusual these days. I mean, really, we don't have a lot of leading actresses in the musical theater, so well, save that that's voice. Very, 
kind of you. At, at present, I am playing someone who's a little more, you know, she's a little more sexy and a little right. more, you know, get to have legs and get to, you know, sunglasses. Sun 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 right. a trench coat and be mysterious and sexy and, and have a, a little temper every now and then. You know, it's great fun. Mark, you're usually the, uh, the stalwart leading man type who can sing. See, I, I think that I'm not usually the leading man. I'm oh, usually I'm usually I a see. character actor. That's why when people I call me a leading see. man, I always laugh oh. because I don't really play leading roles. Okay. And I think it's the same thing with what I don't know how people perceive me physically, or at mm -hmm. times I do know how they f perceive me physically, which has nothing to do with the human being. Mm -hmm. You know. But then that's a part of I think what we do. You know, it's that thing of you know watching someone move physically, and it's the question of why they are physically the way that they are. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's always to the core of the logic and you know from that logic is the passion for their logic okay. so there's your heart and there's your head and from there I think everything else can follow suit you know you're talking about you know it's funny those are the kind of characters that Dennis was talking about that I like to go to I like playing characters that are on the edge of being good or bad and at any given moment they can go either way you know because that's what I think makes us all human and most of the characters that I play if there's one thing that I usually end up playing it is a very heightened personality it is someone right. in a heightened right. state of emotion, whether that be good or whether that be not so good. <laughs> you know, I don't find there's much difference between mm -hmm. the two. And when you're on that very fine line, you know, I mean, everybody has logic and everybody is yeah. a human being and everybody has their reasons. Now, sometimes one person's logic doesn't make sense to another. But if you could step into their shoes and see it through their eyes, you might suddenly go, oh, wow, you know. So it's, like, it's like an insane logic. Um, I, I played a schizophrenic for... Uh, a, a Law and Order episode once, and <laughs> I, I actually researched it pretty heavily, and my sister's a nurse, and she was dealing with schizophrenia at that time, and she sent me the, all the medications, and I just went through the medications and just listed just what the side, result, the side effects oh. were mm. in terms of dry mouth, mm. oh. physical tics, everything like that, oh, interesting. and you just kind of think, wow. God, what might that be like to try to minimize that as a human being oh. and try not to show it, and then, you know, schizophrenics have things like they hear voices, but they really concretely hear them. It comes from there. Mm -hmm. It comes from there. It's not like this weird thing, I hear voices. No, I hear a voice from there. Mm -hmm. Who is that speaking? And you just approach mm -hmm. it logically and say, why is a voice coming from that camera? I worked That's with Dory Previn, who is, is a diagnosed schizophrenic, and she wrote a piece called Schizophrenic. And she talked about how she missed her voices, that how the medicine in making her well made her dull. Mm. That she, we, she had yeah. the privilege and the gift of hearing voices. Well, where does art come from? You know, I mean, you know, it's well, never a comfortable place. But you've know? just mm -hmm. helped me because very much it is a, a, a conundrum that I've been stuck in for a number of weeks now. Golda Meir had lymphoma throughout her prime ministership and went for secret uh, treatments. I, please God, I'm still well to my knowledge, but I was very worried and I was started to research the disease. So I said, how am I going to do this? Because I don't want to go there and start right. to get knowledge of the disease. I keep checking my armpits. <laughs> right. But what I will do now is get the medications yeah. and how yeah. you disappear how the disease. Yeah. I'll yeah. put my mind right. there yeah. instead of on the disease. Right. And she died of lymphoma, which is a choice I choose not to have. Yeah. Right. But in gaining knowledge of it, I must tell you, it, it frightens me. So that's a very good thing. I'm going to do the medications. Medication. Thank you very much. I'll <laughs> yeah, tell my sister. Tell your sister, I'll send sister. her to the Helen Hayes. Right. <laughs> when you all started out. <laughs> Playing nightly. Right. right. <laughs> when you all started out and were auditioning, 
were you typecast? I read a very cute thing that Hume Cronin said. He said he went to be to the to, you know do his audition, and the casting agent said to him, "You don't look like anyone." <laughs> and I, 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 it's like, how do you, when you start out, look like someone they they want? Louis, did you have any? Well, I mean, the trick is that you have to keep reinventing yourself. You start off, and you're a young actor, and they want to categorize you as one thing. And then all of a sudden you're in your 30s and you're different. Now I'm in my 50s. So the good thing about it is that a lot of people quit. So this is good. This is good for everyone. At first you're competing against thousands of people. Everybody who wants to be an actor. I'm not quitting, baby. Nobody here. Nobody here about us. And you're all the same. That's true. So yeah. So at this stage of the game, I'm competing against five other people. At least I tell myself that. And you're all friends. What? You're all friends. Right. You go to the audition and you go. We all lie to each other. We say you're wonderful. You're so good. But Louis, I absolutely agree with Louis. And, and the other, mm -hmm. besides the fact that the the playing field gets less because people go into yeah. other places, that that fortitude to to stay there. But the other thing that happens is patronage. Part of our survival is not the first invitation to work with a director. Mm. It's the second. It's mm -hmm. the third. Mm -hmm. You get patronage, you're on your way. Mm -hmm. That, that's, that's when I teach, uh, I always tell my students, it's not the first invitation. You only have one chance to make a first impression, mm. but you want to create a situation where you will be invited back to work. And then you have a few of those, there you go, you know? Whether it's law and order or whatever you're doing, you, you, the roundabout, you have your patrons. And, uh, Did anybody discourage you, say, when you first started, said, I want to be an actress as a young person? Did, did oh, definitely. I think they always do. First of all, they said that name. You have to change it. Uh, that's got to go. And um, <laughs> suggestions to replace it were Susie, we were on a, on a cover of a magazine. Oh, my God. The, yes, we the, were. Uh, the odd-named uh, <laughs> famous four was <laughs> Susie Kurtz, Jill Eikenberry, Meryl Streep, and Tuna Vulture. I remember it well. That's right. Good. Who are your actresses to watch? What were your name suggestions? Tiffany? Tiffany. Oh, no. Was that typecasting? They thought charming. You know, I've never understood this. I'm still to this day bewildered, as I'm sure we all are, by this this thing of how people think of you. Because, I mean, I get cast very much blue, very, very sort of, you know, socialite, upper class, very intelligent, blah, 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 moneyed, whatever. And then, on the other hand, whenever they want someone who lives in a trailer park is, uh, and is on serious antidepressants <laughs> and has had shock treatments, they call me. So I go, well, where? <laughs> I don't get this. You know, I don't get any of it. But Thank you, lucky stars. But that's so but, great. But yes, there can Mark. be a reverse to that. I mean, at the same time, Hume was a teacher of mine. Oh, was yes? a professor of mine in college, oh. and he told us all that story. It's so cute. And then, of course, <laughs> he'll, he went on to, you know, do a couple different monologues of a duffel. You know, he did Henry V, he did Richard Thirty. I mean, he just went through the route. And every time, you, you bought everything that he did. And you realize that the good fortune this man had was he was a palette for anything he wanted to be, which is a gift if you know that it's a gift. I think it's important that we all know what our strengths are, what we have to offer as people. Because then there's the other side of it. If you are a, like, of course I was typed. Do you know? I mean, I am a, oh, 
Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> the breastfeeding. No, 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 no. <laughs> sorry about that. Now, I just put this out there because I am a Jew. I am Jewish. You I'm, are? See? Now, <laughs> what's funny is I worked, I, worked with, I worked with Gene Sachs many years ago, and um, I had a great time working with Gene because he just reminded me of my grandfather. And there was a rhythm. There was something that, you know, I, I grew up in, a, a, a vernacular that was just a part of my being. And I used to say to Gene all the time, come on, come on, talk to Neil. I want to do a Neil Simon play. Let me do a Neil Simon play. And he would say to me, Bubby, look at you. <laughs> you know, and it was just, and it's so funny. I played a priest three times, <laughs> you know? But, and you know, and I keep saying to them, I remember when I first came to New York, and I'm serious, one of my first auditions was uh, for Fiddler on the Roof, the last revival that they did. I was brought in three times, and every time I walked in the room, they looked at my, you know, because they, they saw my name. Yes. And then I walked in, they were like, Oh, um, Fietka? Every time, you know, for the Gentile. Yeah. Fietka, every time, and I finally, I swear to you, I said, this is what we look like. From that part of the world, this, 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 this is what we look like. Pia, I think we're all typecast in the sense that, other than your children, your parents, how important are we to other people? I mean, yeah. we try to be civilized and love yeah. each other, but it's shorthand. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. suggested, I used one name, Terry Fairchild, for oh, my nice. first Matunic, okay. Rhode Island, Theater by the Sea. And had I gone with Terry Fairchild, I might have had a, a different career. Yes. But these roles that broke right. through for me, whether it was Yentl, Holocaust, Kissing Jessica Stein, now Golda Meir, they brought me luck. Okay. I mean, my birth name is Terry Sue Felchu. You know, it is. And I, too, I always, whenever I play the Algonquin, I say, I would like to introduce you to the person responsible for my nose. My mother, Lillian. She stands up like this. But occasionally, something can happen out of desperation. <clears throat> During one of the many lulls in my career in the 1980s, I took out a casting director. I realized that she was a big baseball fan. And I had the, arguably the best season tickets at the Mets at Shea Stadium. So I invited her to a game, and she owed me one. So what she did is she thought she'd play a joke on me, and she asked me to audition for this female version of The Odd Couple in which they needed two Hispanic brothers. And there were many, many uh, um, jokes about baldness, and I, I, I was not bald at the time. And uh, I went in there, and. And I got there early, and there I was, sitting in a room with 30 middle-aged Hispanic men. And as I went in, not having any idea what I was going to do, I said to them, what am I doing here? And they said, I don't know. So I walked in there, and at the time, Raul Julia, oh. right? But he infuriated me, Raul Julia, because they would cast him in anything. And he had a, a, a ver, an accent, you know. Even when he was playing Shakespeare, he, he would talk like that, you see. So I walked in there, and I had to make a, a, a decision quickly. And I said, if Raul Julia can play Noel Coward, I can play Raul Julia. Yeah. And I went and I got the game. It's funny, one of the things that I find uh, difficult about, it's not even typecasting, it's like career casting. Yeah. I spent 
probably ten years playing serial killers. I mean, I could not get out of <laughs> it. <laughs> and it, you know, I know, I just keep talking about it. Oh but then, and then I came to New York and I started doing comedy. Yes. And now I won't get sense. called in for serious <laughs> no. things. I kind of go, oh, on. Oh, oh, you, you're no. so funny. Right, you're so funny. You can't do... But the, the truth of the matter is, all of us can do all of it. That's what we're trained right. for. That's what's so frustrating. Any decent actor you know, can I, boot. I, I sometimes want to shriek, but that's what I do. Right. Yes. I mean, I'm sure we all felt this. You know, they say, oh, but you know, she's too this, and she's not enough this. And say, yes, but I can become, <laughs> I become different people. That is what I do. The yeah, difference between actors and personalities. So often they're gonna they look for someone who they think is very much like that character. Yes. Fantastic. Can that person consistently with technique and with discipline do that eight shows a week and be present to other people on the stage to the growth and the expansion of the communication of what's mm -hmm. going on? Because if you hire an actor, or forgive me, a personality that is perfect for the role that can't act. Well, that's well, you're lost. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what I mean. But so often, that's they're waiting for that person to just walk in and be but that. It's so much more. But it, yeah. Right. Hello. Yeah. But Rebecca, how did you came from well, Alabama? Yes. Right. How in the world did you get from Alabama to Broadway? <laughs> Can you tell me that about thirty uh, seconds? Well, sure. Did uh, somebody say don't do it? It's dangerous. <laughs> no, my no, my family had no idea what I was. Get, getting into and they and they've always encouraged me mm -hmm. and they don't know enough about it to be afraid of it so it was always oh great you're going to New York great have a good time you know whatever you know it's really what it's serious and my mother has no yeah my mother's never been afraid of my being in New York I, I don't yeah. know why right, she right. just had faith that I'd be all right but uh Gosh, I was going to talk about something else. But how yes, did I get yes. to New York? Yeah. I, uh, I just did a little community theater there. Oh. I did, majored in music at the local university and met some people in the community theater that lived in New York and got and myself a audition. And when you went on auditions right away, you started auditioning, and did they immediately type you? Yeah, I, I had an agent when I came here, and yes, I've been typecast my entire life, right. and I'm still being typecast, and, 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 I, and I love... You've got to get older. You've got to wait. I, no, I, love the, I love the roles that I do, and I'm slowly, slowly, slowly oh. starting to do finally other things in, in, in my 40s. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I was about to say Honey, was... Honey, don't admit to that. You look like not. you're 20. You're 20. Oh, you're oh. 20. Oh. So it's good to be in your 40s. 40, 40. 40. Yes, it's a great <laughs> decade. Okay. Because it's other sweet. people quit. Yeah, that's right. Get out of for so very long yeah. that, it, that I think that has worked to my advantage at times because when you do something remotely different in an audition, yeah. so, somebody will go, she can do something right. else. She oh. can yeah. play another character. Wow. So the bar is so low. Well, actually, for me, I, would, I yeah, really feel like that. But I've got jobs. jobs. I have gotten Patronage. Patronage. You have a you go to Jack O'Brien, somebody who loves right. you. I did five plays from it. You go, come on. At least yeah. give me a shot. Mm -hmm. Let me try. They may not give you the part, but they'll give you the audition, yeah. and sometimes right. you can stop the conveyor belt. I did that with a play yeah. called Paddywhack. It's about um, uh, an IRA guy in England, who, and I played a British Cockney. And I was the first person, and Debbie Brown brought me in as kind of, not a joke, but she kind of went, eh, we'll throw Dennis O'Hare in there. Right. The, character <laughs> is, the character is Brian, six feet four inches. 235 pounds. You're perfect. Bruiser Cockney. <laughs> and the first person that walks in, and John Tillinger goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm reading for Brian. He went, no, you're reading for, and I said, I'm reading for Brian. He went, all right, go ahead. And I did what I wanted to do, and he hired me. Right. Wow. And that, that wow. whole day, everyone else who came in, he kind of went, What's with all these big guys? Give me the little wiry Irish guys. Come on, give me that. I did a piece called The Wild Party, which yes. was uh, a 20s piece, mm -hmm. uh, very dark. And um, 
I was on the subway, and um, I happened to bump into the composer on the subway, Michael John Lacusa. And Michael John, you know, very sweet, just kind of <laughs> looked at me, and he was like, listen, we're doing this thing for the public. It's called the Wild Party. And, you know, it's something I've wanted you to do for a while, but you, you've kind of been kind of busy, but I want to know if you want to come in and audition for this role. And he, now, I had been asked to do the other wild party, playing, you know, of course, a pugilist, a boxer. <laughs> and, um, wow, big stretch. And, um, big vocabulary. Interesting, interesting. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, it was a neat character. But, you know, at this given time, yes, you're like, yes. how many of these guys can one person play? And you want to say, ah, I'm more. And he said, why don't you, you know, ask them to send you the stuff. And, and the character was a Noel Coward-esque, bisexual, drug-addicted, hedonistic... <laughs> Yeah. Rapist. I mean, I'm not kidding you. You said get Dennis, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dennis is hey. not available. I don't do drugs. <laughs> because Lewis was using killing. him to knock off all the other guys. <laughs> but it was wild because I'm reading this going, no one would ever think of me for mm -hmm. something like this. And I went in. Now, thankfully, it was for George Wolfe, who I had never auditioned for before, and I'd only heard horror stories about auditioning for. And I'm sitting there, of course, and there are all these tenors, you know, let's just say smallish men, um, and there's me, you know. I'm like, hi, how you doing, you know? And, but I had a very particular point of view about how I wanted to play it, and I had a very particular logic that I had found for myself for it. And I walked in, and I did it, and he gave me some direction, but it, the whole time it was really positive, and he literally said to me as I was leaving, that was the best audition I've seen all day. Mm. And I walked out, and I got the job like two hours later. Mm. No one that I had worked for before, now this is the other end of it, no one that I had worked for before who thought they knew me mm. would have ever offered me a right. job right. like that, right. yeah. ever. Now, it's not to put yeah. anyone down that no, way, because, no, you know, every if we're fortunate, we have a talent where we have flexibility and we can be equally convincing in pretty much any direction we want to go because we are connected to whatever that truth is. You know, and I'm thankful for that and I'm thankful to George Wolfe because I play that role and it made me laugh because people said to me, oh my God, oh you're so thin. No I'm not. It's how you carry yourself. Do you know? There was nothing different between that and when I, the last show that I and did. And that's the first time I saw you and I remember thinking, you know, uh, not how right you were for the part, but I didn't question it at all. It was, it was a great performance, extraordinary performance, and I kind of went something like, I mean, in my mind, I assume that's the kind of parts you always play. I mean, I really did. I kind of went, oh, it's good. Wow. I mean, and seriously, it was, that's, well, that's how I perceived it. That's also you. the problem. Uh, when you are a good enough mm -hmm. actor and you create the illusion of somebody, the casting director buys into it completely yeah, yeah. and thinks yes. that that's what you do. Especially TV they, and film. They, they don't look come. back on your entire mm. career. They, mm. they, they cast you in the last thing that you've done. Yes. Yeah. So well, did you, you play baseball? I mean, as a kid? Well, no, did you, did you take me out? I, you're a baseball player. No, I'm, I'm a, I am an accountant in you the You are play. an accountant. No, I'm sorry. I, actually, okay. I, I play the gay accountant who sorry. inherits a baseball player. She didn't say it. No, but I become <laughs> a baseball man. <laughs> I become a baseball fan oh, okay. by the oh, end of the play, okay. and it's funny because uh, I did play baseball. I mean, I think it's hard to be an American male and not play right. baseball. You, you get, you know, it's kind of like camel training or something. And um, <laughs> I played baseball and was told not to play because I was too small. And um, I, they would say, "Don't hit the ball. Whatever you do, crouch down. And I'll walk you." You know what I mean? Aww. So I get really short. And you know, and I, I was, I was, I, would, I didn't go to public school. I went to Catholic school, so all the kids, I didn't know any of the kids. 
So I was always the odd guy out. You know, I was always, as it calls, the guppy gobbler oh. and uh, fish eaters. And um, so I was, I was, um, I, so I had enough of it one day, and I decided to hit the ball, and I got a double, and they yanked me out of the game for disobeying the, um, the oh, coach's rules. Oh. So that ended my baseball yeah, career, and I became an actor. And you became an actor. I hope you can oh, use that in your method acting. Can use no, the pain of this. I wasn't very talented. I would sit in the outfield and eat grass. You know what I mean? I would oh. center field and sit there and sit down and go. And the ball, <laughs> ten-year-olds can't hit that far. You know what I mean? So we got no play on that. Let's get to teaching teachers and how you study to do what you do. Um, David Mamet once said that he thought most acting teachers were frauds. That's why he's a writer. <laughs> do, you, do you think Even acting? Did you ever? Do you agree that most acting teachers are frauds? Well, or I, I think that. Uh, well, this I'll just tell you my experience. I went to the neighborhood playhouse. I was 17 years old, and I didn't make the cut. Sa Sanford Meisner was the acting teacher, and he taught a, a thing that everything was behavioral, that everything, not behavioral, but that everything was uh, uh, working off another person's behavior. And I asked him a lot of questions in class, and I was not worshipful enough. And he didn't like me. And I remember Winston <laughs> Churchill had just died. And this great man, Winston mm -hmm. Churchill, and uh, for somebody from the second year came over to me and said, uh, what do you think of Sandy? <laughs> and I said, I, I don't know. I, all I'm doing is improvising for a year and a half. I'm improvising. I want to act. I want to act. <laughs> and uh, she, I said, he, he's, he's witty enough in a kind of a sadistic sort of a way, but I, 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 he's, he's a bit of a megalomaniac from what I could see. And she said to me, well, I think that all great men are megalomaniacs. I think that Winston Churchill was a megalomaniac. And I thought, Winston Churchill and Sandy Meisner? I mean, where did those two meet? Were they at Yalta? Was that, was, I thought that was Rose Alton Stout. You know, at any rate, I was totally lost. I was totally lost. And I met a friend who had also been kicked out of the neighborhood playhouse. And he said, I'm studying with a woman by the name of Stella Adler. Yes. And I met her, and she made me audition for her in her bedroom. Of course. And I thought, this already is more interesting than a year and a half of the neighborhood. <laughs> this is why I got into theater, all right? And this is what she said to me. I auditioned, I, I did uh, Blow Out Your Candles, Laura, and So Goodnight Tom in the last monologue of, uh, which I was as wrong for then as I am now, all right? I'd pay to see that. Uh, wouldn't I'd pay you? to see that. Sure, next, and then Hamlet. I'll do him in repertory. So at the end of it, Stella Adler, who sat at, on this ridiculous paper mache throne, said to me, she said, you're, you're Jewish? <laughs> I was supposed to be from the south, you see. Okay, so I said yes. She said you're from you're from Brooklyn. I said yeah, I am. She said you're nice. You're a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn, but that's not good enough. And then she went into this thing about how you represent the poetic sensibility of mankind. That you're playing Tennessee Williams. That there are people who under, only understand what is material. And what is and and or what is poetic, and she told me that I had a responsibility to figure out what the play was about, and what part of the puzzle my character was in the play, and 
all of a sudden the world opened up to me mm -hmm. and I said this is more about this is more than just about being a success this is about becoming an evolved human being mm -hmm. and uh, she gave me five craft elements that I use the first day of rehearsal and if you have five craft elements what are the five we craft want elements? them oh dear now <laughs> you're going to make Wait, me say it no. I can't even remember one of them <laughs> no <laughs> that you have to know what side of the political argument you are on that life mm -hmm. is basically an argument and that a play is a microcosm of life played out in two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is you have to figure out what side of the political equation you are. And, and uh, poli politics is, is a misnomer in a way. For instance, when I'm playing Max Bialystok, mm -hmm. I realize that the reason why Max Bialystok is ebullient <laughs> and positive is because he's a man with no guilt. None. <laughs> None. <laughs> he will do everything and it will be a wonderful thing. He is moving towards what he needs. And when you are able to break down a play and say that Mel Brooks, when he writes, it's all about immediate need. You're, you're willing to say or do anything to get what you need. That's part of being, uh, knowing what side of the political equation you are on. So I don't want to monop monopolize too much time, but that's one craft element, and that's a good one to. Mm. That Any helps other me. acting what, teachers that helped? Uta Hagen was my first Uta teacher. Hagen. I went to her when I was 17 and just entered Sarah Lawrence. She was a turning point, like Stella Adler was a turning point for you. Mm -hmm. So I, I disagree with, uh, with Mr. the very gifted Mr. Mamet. I, I think that a great teacher can be a turning point in your life. Mm. She believed in me. I went to the Guthrie. Michael Langham did not believe in me. Mm -hmm. I kept her voice with me. I also had a great advantage. My beloved older brother David was an associate director at the Guthrie. He had just been promoted from actor to director. So at least he was in the community <coughs> while I was not being cast and was understudying all the size seven girls, which was Diane Wiest, Roberta Maxwell. I carried Spears for two years there. Well, Diana Wiest <laughs> is not a small girl now. Well, but she's I'm a great actress. Now. Yeah. But that's a great <laughs> teacher. Any other great teachers? I, and Uda, Uda Hagen was, was a great teacher at a turning teacher. point. And Stella Adler also came backstage to Yentl, and she said, Marvelous performance. Now learn to speak. speak. <laughs> oh. Where are you from? I said, Scarsdale. She said, bad enough. Come to my class. And so I may not have learned my diction from her, though I did go to Edith Warman Skinner at Juilliard and hired her to become my wow. teacher at that point. She, I, I actually hired the Juilliard faculty while I was in Yentl to study with them when they would give me uh, tutorials. And I thought, but I did, go to, I did go to her classes, and she was quite brilliant. And she was a, a geopolitical actress. She saw the Weltanschung, the world gesture for a play. And I think that is one of the most important things. It's funny because teaching plays, that's how I was taught. I, I, <coughs> my teacher was a guy named David Downs. Uh, I went to Northwestern, Illinois. And uh, the tradition at Northwestern is bizarre enough. I have a bachelor's of science in speech, mm. which is very useful. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, um, but the, he comes from a woman named Malvina Krauss, yeah. Oh, yeah. who is pretty much pure Stanislavski, uh, or whatever American version of Stanislavski. So I was taught through Chekhov. The way we learned to act was through Chekhov. Mm -hmm. You know, we studied, you know, the four great plays. Um, we studied Ibsen. Uh, we studied for style. We studied plays. Mm -hmm. And via the play, you learn how to act. Mm -hmm. And we studied Neil Simon for comedy. And we studied Maggie Smith's timing mm -hmm. for comedy. 
Okay. The old earring really? trick. As long as you're doing something here, darling. It's funny. with your That's good. That's my sixth craft element. <laughs> <laughs> Always do something. That's going in tonight for the prime minister. She doesn't even have earrings. She'll play with her lobe. But no. What is one of those craft elements is in comedy? In comedy is many times physical, but comedy is also made of being involved with something else in the world while throwing away the line, mm -hmm. not worrying about the joke, worrying about the cup. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's throw um, it away. Yeah, throw it away. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, but we we taught. We in, in David would always say, "Who is the playwright? Where is the playwright sitting?" What is the playwright's point of view? So, for instance, he said Chekhov is sitting outside the cabin on a chair looking in the window, like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. He said Ibsen is obviously like Shaw up here. I'm Shaw, I'm sorry. Shaw is like the, the thing, my for lady. He's the marionette player. He's up here with the strings like this, making his characters do the things he wants them mm -hmm. to do. You know, who, and, and by visualizing who the playwright is and where he sits and how he sees the world, you understand how to act as plays. Then you understand how the characters re exist in those plays as part of the puzzle. What part of the puzzle is my character? Mm. Do no more, do no less. You know, I remember the great famous Greek spe messenger speech. He said, the Greek messenger is the hardest thing in the world to do. You got to come in as a Greek messenger. You got to come in in a hurry. You got seven pages to say. <laughs> no one knows who you are. Nobody cares who you are because you're not the queen. You're not Creon. You're not Antigone. But you're the play. Because you bring the world from the outside in. How much do you create as a messenger? Do you create, create your incestuous relationship with your mother? You know, do you create the limp? For the most part, probably not. You know what I mean? You do your job, which is to paint that world in front of the audience's eyes. And that's all you do. But Stella used to get wonderful dinner parties. And the waiters all had white gloves and, and really performed very well at the table. And one day I said, I think I'm going to get a dinner party. Where do I get the waiters that you had? She said, from my school. They are all students, and they have to know that they have to wait on the table and do whatever else is needed to do in order to be a successful actor. They have to know how to wait on the table. And so therefore, they wait on my table for <laughs> we, we had a Christmas party, just in terms of the things that you learn. We had a Christmas party. She had a, a, a studio that was above a French restaurant right opposite from the Lincoln Center. Now there's a beautiful factory of, of her school, but she's no longer here. And uh, we had a Christmas party set for seven. And s we were all there, about, f about 100 of us. And seven, no Stella. Eight, no Stella. Nine, no Stella. Ten, no Stella. Finally, at 10 o'clock, she came in. And she went over to every single one of us and took, it was so pretentious, she, she, would, she, she would go like this, or she'd kiss you, and she'd touch your hand. It was an entrance that took three and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> and then she sat down on this ridiculous throne that she always would sit on, and she looked at all of us and she said, let that be a lesson to you. You can be a phony in life, but you can't be a phony on the stage. Mm. And you went, oh, yeah, that's good. That's you know, good. that was worth the three hours. <laughs> that's good. That's, that's good. good. I How was do fortunate you? that, like, I had Hume Cronin. Yeah. I had Zoe Caldwell. Oh. Mm. I had Joshua Logan. Where were you? <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky. I was at Florida Atlantic University, and it was run by, um, you know, uh, I had, my mentor's name was J. Robert Dietz. Probably nobody knows the name, but. Back in the 50s and in the 60s, he worked at Stratford constantly. He was 
um, a uh, co-worker of William Ball's. When Bill Ball was at the ACT for so many years, they had worked together in New York City. And I had this, I was a political science major. So honestly, I went to school, you know, focusing on political science. I took theater as something to lighten the load of the poli-sci. And this man was the man that said to me, you could do this if you really wanted to do this. And what he gave me, I mean, a lot of people gave me great things. There's no question. And I was touched by people who were instrumental in, you know, like digging the groundwork which I'm thankful for. But the thing that J. Robert gave me, I think, was he gave me his heart. He had such a love for what he did. He had such a passion, and he was, a, um, he was the most renowned person on Williams, Tennessee Williams. He was his friend, and when Tennessee passed, people would come into class asking for information from J. Robert, this tiny little man mm -hmm. who was a brilliant actor, but he was an elf. I mean, he literally, mm -hmm. he was trouble. He would do the worst things on stage that you're not supposed to do. I mean, like we were doing um, Night of the Iguana, he was playing Nano, and he would stick cherries up his nose. <laughs> and he would stick them up his nose to show you that he could upstage you at any time he wanted to. <laughs> and he only did it out of sheer love, out of sheer love of what he was doing. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, the man was brilliant, but what he was was just brilliant. And he had this incredible heart. And I just honestly, from watching him around the school and watching him with his peers, and the way that he taught was what made me go, if he can be that happy and joyful in what he does, you know, I, I don't want to be political science, man. I don't want to be a politician. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, did you have a teacher? Yeah. No one, no one famous, no one. But somebody that's I'm not talking about my teacher. Somebody teachers. mentioned I, you or noticed you in the well, singing, or how did they yes, find you? Yes, I mean, I, you know, I've had some wonderful voice teachers my whole career, and um, I've been studying with a woman named Joan Later for a long, long, long time. We, some of you, know her. Um, and, and acting teachers, just, you know, scene study here and there and some wonderful coaches and, you know, they've... So you're an example of a person who just comes with the equipment. You need a little well, fine-tuning, maybe, but not... Well, I mean, I was born with the ability to sing, certainly, right. and I, you know, I've developed it over the years and... and because there I'm, are people who I, say you can't teach acting. You, you can't really teach it. You can fix or it up a little. Or, or singing. Know. Maybe some elements of singing, you know, this... this Drives me crazy about the business, people getting parts that they can't sing. But that's a whole, <laughs> yes, other, yes, yes. That's a whole other two hours we can go do into that. Do you have to do a lot of body work to keep your voice, your throat, and everything open, and yes, uh, no. massage, and exercise? Yeah, well, Is it a whole... After you've done it for decades, not so much for my part. I mean, I can sort of just do it, but you have to warm up you know, a little bit. But I mean, it's, it's a craft, like anything else. You have, it takes repetition. It mm. takes practice. It takes great repetition that's all I can say mm -hmm. doing it and doing it and doing it and, and to expect someone to come into a show who can't sing to just carry a role is beyond me <laughs> or, or who can't or act, act. Or, or anybody who doesn't have the skill to think because they're a famous person yeah. they're suddenly going to be able to it's just, it's just you know it's it's very difficult thing and 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 it demeans what we do and it and it makes no sense to me at all but I'm getting off the subject uh, sorry, do you all have enough um, rehearsal time these days? Is there when you go to put on a play? Because I've heard some actors say that it's less never. and less and less and there's no time to rehearse. You know, in a way, there's never enough rehearsal time. I mean, for me, I love rehearsal. Rehearsal is my favorite. So what would, uh, what's the ideal? A I month? stay in rehearsal hall the whole <laughs> oh, time and never, never go into the other. Invite people in. Because, you know, that's the discovery. Mm -hmm. That's the process part. That's our 
fun, at least speaking for myself. I don't know if anybody agrees with me. No, no. But no. just that once you've found, you know, it's the search that's mm -hmm. fun and challenging and terrifying. Once you've found the optimum choice and stuff, and then you do it over and over again eight times a week, and that's wonderful too. But the, the gestation period, the building of the house, the foundation, and then, you know, it's just so thrilling to, to you know, see it, see it come to life. And the previews are thrilling too, but then once you kind of, okay, you're on the treadmill now, you got to do it eight times a week, full out. And that's wonderful too, but. What's the ideal the amount thing. of time to rehearse? Yeah. Depends on the play. Yeah. Six, eight weeks, something. Six, eight weeks. Not too long because then you go past a point. Right, you need yeah. an audience at a yeah. certain right, point. Right, yeah. Right. I mean, three and a half, four weeks in the rehearsal hall. Beyond that, it's a little too. But, but in see, the that's old right. Russian theater, didn't they do it for five months? Months ah. and months. Oh. Yeah, but you're talking about. I mean, I, I, again, the play. Check I mean, off. check off. Check off. If you're Don't doing you Neil Simon, you need an audience to figure out how the play interacts with the audience. The audience is the second part of the play. That's the other person. But with Chekhov, it. It may be closed off from the audience. It's truly fourth wall yes. theater in a strange way. You, not that you don't care about them, but you're not performing for them as much as you're interacting with each other. Come in. Yeah. I think you yeah. always yeah. need right. an audience. Right. Because after all, that's, that's what we're, we're not that's doing it do in it. the forest. Right. But, but you we're need doing that energy. I mean, yeah. it's a yeah. transference. You need it. Even I'm not just talking about laughs. There's a certain. Uh, there's all no, kinds yeah, of other feedback. But even feedback. when it's yeah. still and quiet, like you say, it's energy. You need it, it's energy. to know if yes. it's landing. You need to know if what you're doing is reading as what you need. Do you notice it when it gets really silent? Because sometimes I'm in the theater. And it gets so Great. quiet. <laughs> that can be wonderful. And nobody coughs. Yeah. And it's well, that's when you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really it's quiet. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's not the rehearsal, personally, I find of late. It's not the rehearsal that we have plenty of rehearsal time to a certain degree. I think that we don't, honestly, for my taste, don't have enough preview time. Because oh, we get like three, three and a half weeks, and then everybody's down to the wire. There's nothing but tension, and everybody's trying to well, fix it. Well, and the last it. week is in previews, yeah. the last week that's is critics. And oh, critics. Yeah. And, yeah. and oh, that's when, really in the process, that's when all the other elements come in. And that's when you, re you feel time pressing on you, and you feel other things pressing on you, and you feel producers pressing on you, and you feel all of those outside forces going, okay, we gotta get it right now, we gotta get it right because we're going to be put out there for the world to strip us down. And I, there's a part of, as we all know, once you're into a run, where you begin to really relax into a show and you begin to just enjoy yourself in the show because the pressure is gone. Then you really begin to find that play. Yeah. You know, and I think that if we had another month of previews, it wouldn't feel so claustrophobic, and you could have some time to live in it more than two days after they've frozen it. Do you know what I mean? Well, I guess they used to be yeah. out of town. Yeah. Right, exactly. Well, people people were out, out of town and played in But even the out-of-town process, well. though, you still have three to four weeks of rehearsal, then you've got maybe a week of preview. You know, or two weeks of preview, and then you open, and then they leave it alone until we go to New York. I just wish it weren't so rigid in terms of because yeah. I think every experience is different, yeah. and they shoehorn all of the all these plays into the same schedule. For instance, you'll be in a rehearsal hall, and you've got the tape on the floor, you know, and you're, you're rehearsing away, and it's going marvelously, and then you move into the theater, and it all falls apart mm -hmm. for whatever reason, because maybe the tech elements come in, or something happened in the transference. You've got to get it back. So in that instance, for that play, you may need four days before you actually go to tech. Because mm -hmm. tech, 
the work stops and the work starts to degrade. Now, I don't agree with you. My favorite part of the rehearsal is tech. I love really? tech. I love tech. I love and tech. the reason why I love tech is because the energy that one has to put out to put on the, the continuation of a performance that runs throughout an evening, there's a tendency at a certain point, usually after three weeks, to play the whole play in every scene. <laughs> and when you have time for technical rehearsal, they stop you so that you can really think about it. It's almost like slowing up into a slower gear. And for some reason, my body and mind, my heart and my head come together mm. in, a, in a very productive way. You know why? Tech. Because they're, they're not time. watching yeah. us. Mm -hmm. The right. eyes are not yeah. on mm -hmm. us. They're yeah. watching that light. Time can you move a little to the, yeah. And it's, it's yeah. so, the pressure is off mm. of us. And that's when you can do some real creative work. It's a very, it's a very good thing. Also, in the old, old days, when I made my got my first starring role a quarter of a century ago, you really had opening night. You had your parents and all the first night critics there the first night, and you had the outer critics the second night. That was your thing. And you want to talk about pressure? It was hellacious. So this way, in a way, they may come during previous, but you got a you got a shot. They come over three, four days. Right, right. We just got a marvelous uh, uh, notice that was brought to my attention by the critic himself, who will remain nameless. This was a wild situation. But, of course, he came last Sunday. Yeah. I didn't know about it. Same thing you said. Right. We're two weeks after opening. Yeah. Oh, I'm great. in my soul. But thank God you hey. didn't know. Thank yes. God. Uh, uh, Andrew Lippa said to me, the writer of The Other Wild mm. Party, if you bring your neshama, which is the Hebrew word for soul, if you bring your neshama on stage... The audience will forgive you everything. If you don't, they will forgive you nothing. Wow. And this is what you're talking about, about heart. And in a way, when they do TV casting for us on Broadway, which is a heartbreak mm. for us, it's what Rebecca's talking about, where people without our particular skills, but another set of skills, are given all this burden that they're not trained for. What the, what the either producers or casting directors are buying is their sense of their neshama, of their soul, that they understand it from the small box. I mean, then you have a breakthrough. You have Ariba McIntyre that walks into Annie Get Your Gun, oh, and yeah. she's got scent. Absolutely. She's like, wait, this is French toast. Yeah, there's like a glove. Yeah. It's like a Wasn't glove. That See, I, yeah, I actually yeah. do a little mantra before I go on, because yeah. when you're doing a long run, you suffer from modified stage fright to a certain yeah. degree. Yes, yes. Yeah. absolutely. You, because your routine becomes so set. Mm -hmm. And what yes. you, you're, you're following a performance, you're building, the, you've built the construction of your performance in rehearsal, but you have to be alive in the moment. So uh, what I always do is I always get in contact with my heart, because if I feel that it's in my stomach, then it's just about me. It's about my ego. I always have to see myself as part of something larger than myself, mm -hmm. the collective of the play. So I always do this mantra about, I, I pray to actors who, are, who have come before me, living and dead, and to honor the playwright, but also to try to center it in my heart. And you can feel it when it's in your heart. You certainly can. And you can feel it when it's in your stomach. And that's, that's bad. So the heart, and I didn't know about this until I was 45 years old about even having a heart. Does, does, does some of that come, that, that, that modified stage fright you've talked about, does it come from fatigue partially and just... I think it comes from a lack of anger for me. When you're young, <laughs> no, when you're young, a lot of your impetus is, I'll show you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. That was your question, are there people who said you're not good enough to do this? You go, I'll show you how good I am. Mm -hmm. Then when you get a little older, 
you can, you know, take your anger and you can place it perhaps in a more productive On the place. Internet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> towards our leaders, towards our... Uh, and then there's a vacuum. That you, you can't ride the anger as effectively as when you're a young actor. It's funny, I find that I, 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 I've done this play now about 470 times. We started in May of 2002. We've done it at the Donmar, we did it off-Broadway. Now we've been at the Walter Kerr on 48th Street um, <laughs> since February 7th. And, um, you know, the thing that I've always done, I, I've, I've played a lot of parts where you're periodic. You have a scene, you leave for an hour. You come mm. back, That's and hard. I did it in Cabaret when I was playing the Nazi, and what I remember... <laughs> <laughs> I remember it very clearly. <laughs> the, har the hardest thing about that scene was trying to go, what is the story I'm telling? Where do I fit in the story? Who am I? And what did the audience last think when they saw me? What do I need to catch up it with since they last saw me? And for this part, Mason, I have an hour off. So when I come back on, I have to come back on a train that's been moving. And I have to hit yeah. the right level, the right Sorry. speed. Sorry. And what's the story? And what do I need to tell them about where I'm at in the story? So before I go on, one of these Abbeys do is, even the first entrance, what's the story? What's the story? What's the story? What are we telling them? What's the story? What story am I telling them? What part of the story am I telling them? Yeah. But it's the same thing. It's that world. But I have to know why I'm in the play and what I'm saying. Yeah. I think Martha Graham said going on stage is like dancing with God. Which I always think, you know, whether you believe, whatever you believe in, but it is like a very well, sacred space. That's right. And in terms of telling the story, it is a metaphor, as Stella would say, for the story of mankind itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. Before I go on, I look at the pictures of our, of our boys. I read the obits of our boys who are being killed in Iraq. And I take those boys with me. I take souls living and dead, not past actors. These, we are sending our children to war to fight for oil. And we're killing yeah. them. So, mm -hmm. and it's happening, of course, in, 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 in Israel, too, and for the Palestinian people, too. So, so this play is so clearly dedicated toward peace. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very clear. It's not uh, a small play. It's a huge play about a woman who dedicates herself to the birth of a state like it was the birth of her own flesh and blood. Can I ask you a question? I'm curious about it. Of course. My acting teacher always said, who do you want to be in the audience when you perform? He said, who is your ideal audience? Mm -hmm. If you're doing Antigone, who do you want to be in the audience? We did cabaret for uh, Kofi Annan. Oh. It was an extraordinary evening. It made us kind of all go, I'm just an actor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> this guy actually has a job. You know, so who, have you had people in the audience who are yes. extraordinary, and who do you want to be in your audience? It's such a wonderful question. First of all, when I get frightened, I put unconditional love in You the do audience. what? I put unconditional love in the audience. Like yourself, like other relatives, I, you know, like people who I know love me and love me no matter what. When my blood sisters come from Quaker Ridge School, those are hot nights on the stage. <laughs> They've known me for a long time. They love me from Monroe Play School. So I put that feeling in the black velvet of the audience. I put that, and I try not to fault if people cough. If they move, if they can't hear, the hearing aids, yeah, oh, really? mamma mia. <laughs> My mother is hard of hearing, and she goes, Tova, I rate your parts by how you look. Golda Meir is a zero. <laughs> but, I mean, we're going to have to take a little Sorry. break here. We're just going to get I'll back to this. I'll think of who I think is in the audience, besides <laughs> unconditional love. I, politicos have come. I would love the administration to come. We're going to take to a little break come. right now and have a few words from Isabel Stevenson. I would now like to remind you that these seminars are only one of the many year-round programs that the Wing undertakes. 
You're probably familiar with the American Theatre Wing's Tony Awards given for achievement and excellence in the craft of Broadway theatre. We also have an important grants program providing age off and off-off Broadway theatres. We have expanded our scholarships to promising students to pursue studies in the theatre arts, and we offer a comprehensive guide to careers in the theatre to those seriously interested in entering the profession. As a long-established charity, dating back from World War I and World War II, and our famous stage door canteen, all of our programs are designed to reward and promote excellence in the theater. We just love to introduce young people and their families to theater and the magic it unfolds. We take pride in the work we do, remain grateful to our members and everyone else whose contributions help make possible the dynamic programs of the American Theater Wing. Our work is so important to the theater and the community, and we are proud to be a part of this exciting industry. And so now, let's return to our panel on performance and our moderator, Pia Lindstrom. Pia. Thank you. We're now going to hear from some students from the Bronx Community College Theater Workshop. They're going to ask some questions of our wonderful panel. Go ahead. Hi. My name is Kervin Peralta, and my question is for the entire panel. Now, about typecasting, uh, would you want to elaborate a little more about how did you break that physical and cultural barrier that you had to go through career? Well, I, I, I had a strange thing happen with an agent a long time ago, which was uh, my agent brought me in and sat me down. She said, um, Dennis, you have to grow into your face. I said, okay. And she goes, you're an old man in a young boy's body, and you'll never get work until you're 35. That's what she said to me. And I went, great. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so what I chose to do was not to believe her, because it doesn't, wasn't a helpful thing. What can I do with that information? Um, you know, she was talking about commercials, literally, on-camera commercials. And I think she was right. I've auditioned for probably about 500 commercials in my life, and I've gotten that many. Um, I've gotten a lot of voiceover work. Um, obviously, I've gotten a lot of TV, film, and theater work, but for some reason, in on-camera commercial, this is not a face that works. That's fine. I accepted it. I moved on. I found, I found my, my way in a, a different area. But um, I think I've grown into my face. <laughs> we think so, too. Beautifully. <laughs> Do you grow into your talent? Is it possible that your talent is ahead of your <laughs> age? I mean, Tova, you're mm. playing... I was wondering if you could have played Go to My Air when you were younger. Probably not as, as well, because she didn't have anger as the anger. You know, she's, she actually was much more uh, emotionally, the word isn't controlled, even. She's more even keeled, so how do you make the play interesting? You make all the characters that act upon her, I play about 30 people, be very vivid. King Abdullah of Jordan, very vivid and she is the hub of the wheel. But to answer this gentleman's question, the way you break anything in life is through your will. Yeah. Ben-Gurion's grandchildren were in my dressing room last night. Their grandfather uh, graduated from eighth grade, and he willed a state. Golda Meir's parents did not support her past her 13th birthday. They asked her to go to work in the family store. She ran away from home to live with her sister to put herself through high school. Mm -hmm. And this is before World War I. So you must... Yeah. You must will it. And you fall down seven times, you get up eight. 
I fell off my horse when I was a child, and my father yelled to me. My childhood name was Terry Sue. Terry Sue, Terry Sue, are you okay? And I was lying in a white hacking jacket. I said, I'm okay, Daddy. I'm covered in horse shit. He said, everybody is. Get back on your horse. <laughs> So get back on your horse. <laughs> Anybody I, else on I, this? I think typecasting, type like Mark said, you, you have to know what your strengths are and certainly um, and celebrate them and, 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 and embrace them and, and love them. You know, I, we all do what we do. We, we, we all maybe have been cast in certain things. Uh, you know, me, the, the, the leading ladies in the musicals and things of that nature because, because I, I sing a certain way and I love to sing a certain way and I love what I do. But but along the way you get you do maybe get tired of doing the same thing over and over again. So that's when, as Tova said, you have to say no to a lot of things. You have to accept a lot of things. You have to will your way into certain auditions and just just do it. It's you know? like you gotta have faith. You gotta yeah. have faith in yourself. You've gotta have faith in the ideas that you set forth with and that passion. And you just have to commit to it. I mean, when I was in college. I remember I was told by one particular professor that I would have a great career in soap opera. That's what I was told. Um, and I was told that you know the, the character roles that I was doing while I was in college, because I was an undergrad and every the graduates got to do the leading roles, the mm -hmm. undergrads. Actually, I was the only undergrad. Um, uh, I played all the character stuff. And I was told, now this is not what you're going to do in the real world, and we're trying to prepare you for that. Oh, for you know, so of course, what have I done? Character roles on the stage. Uh, never done a soap opera. <laughs> not that there's go. anything wrong with soap opera. Just, I'm a stage actor. But it's not what you want to do. <laughs> Let's take another uh, question. Hi, my name is Achilles Conde, and I would like to know what's the most valuable thing that you guys have learned while working in the theater? Ah, what's the most valuable thing you've learned? Lewis. Well, I think that uh, when you start out and you, you're the best one in your class, that's good for a few minutes. <laughs> but what you have to do is you have to work with people who are better than you are. And we were talking about teachers. Teachers give you a foundation and it's invaluable because they, they're the starting off point. But Certainly, so much of what I've learned has been working with people who are better than I am. And at this stage of my life, I only work with people who are as good or better than I am. I want to work with artists at this stage of the game. The things that you learn, I'll give you an example. I was doing a, a, a production of The Time of Your Life starring Henry Fonda. It was a great cast. Richard Dreyfuss was in it as a young man, an actor named Victor French, Strother Martin. And Victor French played a, um, the bartender, Nick. And he had to, the f there was a phone downstage right. And whenever the phone would ring, he had to, the, part of the play is he had to go around the bar and pick up the phone. And he would had to say something like, is Dudley Bostwick here? <laughs> That's all. <laughs> and he would do this continually throughout the play. And he got angrier and angrier. And he would throw the rag down. And he would say, he would be vexed. I went to him, I was young, I was like 25 years old, I said, Victor, it doesn't say in the script, angrily throws down the rag. Why are you so angry? And he said, well, I call it stage territory. Uh, my conception of this play is that everything that's in the bar is safe. <laughs> 
It was written in 1939. 1939, Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and Tojo, the world was going mad. I didn't want the phone in my bar. I didn't want it. They told me that I was a technological idiot if I didn't have a, a phone in my bar. I hate that phone, and I hate everything that comes in through that phone because it's danger and chaos. He said, now I do this in everything that I do, and I do this. When I'm on the stage now, I take characters and I say, I like that character. I want to move closer to her. Or, I don't like that character. I'm going to stay on the other side of the stage. It's the same thing with furniture. They say that, they say that the definition of a great actress is a woman who takes the, the upstage center couch and never allows anybody else to sit down on it. It's <laughs> David Lipsky's line. You know. uh, so, from Victor French, I'm a 25-year-old actor, he taught me this craft element. Mm -hmm. And when you work with people who are better than you are, it, 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 what it does is the fabric of your life and the fabric of your profession becomes thicker and thicker, and then, at a certain point, you tell other people this. And I like to teach now. I like to tell, I like to pass on what I know because I don't know anything about anything other than this profession, you know, so. Ah, uh, Lewis, you make me cry. <laughs> Bernard, Bernard Shaw said, I am of the opinion that our lives belong to the community, and as long as we shall live, it is our privilege to do for it whatever we can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a splendid torch which I've got hold of for but one moment in time, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. And I think that's what you're saying. That's so that's what you're saying. Well. The most valuable, one of the most valuable things I've learned about acting and, and life in general is just to, as I'm not saying I can always do this, but is to put your attention on the other person. I mean, it works great for stage fright, for I don't know what I'm doing right. Is, I mean, it's about listening, again, which is acting. But always to, you know, focus, to, to somehow, and this is, we're all still trying to do this to this day, I'm sure, get rid of self-consciousness. Self-awareness, I mean self-awareness, that's good. Self-consciousness is not. But to put your attention on the other person, to change the expression in someone else's eyes. Yeah. yeah. It's true. Hector oh, Berlioz, Hector Berlioz mm, said, all good. that matters is love and work. And as he got closer to his death, not that old, just within the vicinity, he said, all that matters is love. Because from love, all else will follow. And mm -hmm. it sounds very corny, but it is true. It talks about you coming on with your heart and mm -hmm. about you having a bigger context with a play than just your little life and the mm. little story. <laughs> you know, that that phone became the conduit to the chaos of the planet. Yeah. And I choices. I mean, that phone yeah. is a perfect example. It's all about choices. Life is about choices. And acting is about choices. And you have that power to make a choice. But as Rebecca says, you, you get the ability to sing, so then the preparation for just the singing becomes less. But the reservoir what do you want to do to prepare to be a great artist? Educate yourself. Right. Learn. Yes. I don't yes. go to the theater. It's no big shakes because I couldn't do the play well if I didn't. I can't go to the theater without reading that day's paper. Mm. I can't mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that has to inform that performance. Yeah. It's the only thing that's different, they and the audience. Joe DiMaggio hit homer after homer. They said, Joe, why do you keep it in homers? He said, because somebody ain't never seen baseball. You know? Mm. <laughs> wow. Yes. Uh, hi, my name is Felix Fena. I'm a Latino actor from uh, Bronx Community College. 
I like to say all of you are great actors. I love you, your, your work, you know. And um, I got a question for all of you. Uh, as an actor, what do you have to sacrifice to be up here in theater? Mm -hmm. Good question. My life. <laughs> what, was the what did you give my up? Life. Okay, what did you give What's up? I think, you, you know, this uh, cost is great. Mm -hmm. I think the cost is great of such uh, prolonged self-awareness. You are your own instrument, your voice, your body, your psyche, your spirit. Uh, there's a lot. I mean, physically it's like being an athlete. You, ha you are I either in training or you're not, mm -hmm. vocally, physically. You cannot get sick. If you do, you have to find a way to play the play or sing the musical beings. I mean, it's really... Uh, at least speaking for myself, it's it's very it's a, been a great sacrifice, which which I totally again about choices I wanted to make, but I think in terms of relationships, um, locations where you are, mm -hmm. geographically, um, it's 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 a very much of of you decide to do one thing very well, and. In my case, it's been to the exclusion of many other things. <laughs> sure. So that's that's what I can do. That's about it. What have you given up? Given up? Gosh, on on, on one large sense, I feel like I've not sacrificed anything. In fact, I feel like I've enriched my life. I wouldn't want to be doing anything but what I'm doing. So in that case, in that way, I feel if I had stayed in Alabama where I was born, for instance, who knows what my life would be? I I would be might be living in a suburb with some kids and, I don't know, going to the Baptist church down the street. I, you know, it's not me, and I, and I knew it wasn't me way back then, and that's why I left Alabama and came to New York and, and uh, to do something else, have a new life, meet other people, you know, enrich my life. But on another level, I agree with Susie. You, you do sacrifice your free time. Your, you get, it's, you know, if you're on Broadway and you're doing eight shows a week, you're, it's bone you know, I don't know what the word is, bone-crushingly tiring sometimes. You, you've no idea until you do it for years and years and years what, how hard it is. And yet I take great pride in it and love what we do as well. And, and I, you know, while I call it Chinese water torture sometimes to have to do <laughs> the same thing over and over, you, you learn to also learn from it and to love the repetition and to find something new in it every night and to find the freshness in it every night. It's, it's very hard to do and very wonderful when it happens. So you give up a lot to get more, is how I look at it. You know. Did you give up something? Uh, I, 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 I kind of identify with what Rebecca said in terms of uh, I feel like I've gotten so much. And, uh, you know, I tried to quit acting twice. I tried to quit when <laughs> I was 22. I was, I was a poetry major for two years in college, another useful area of study. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and I, I panicked at the last minute and decided to get a theater degree instead because I could actually teach with that. I was wrong about that. I could have taught with a poetry degree. <laughs> um, so that's gone. But, um, you know, um, and I tried to quit when I was 27 just because I got so frustrated with the politics of theater because like any endeavor, music, it doesn't matter what it is, there are politics in it. You know, who you know, how you relate to them, how that person got that job, how you did on that job, whatever. And, and, and I, I, so in a fit of peak, I quit. You know, no one knew I quit. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and when they called and offered me the part and I accepted it, you know, it was like, I'm back! I'm back! Oh. 
Dennis O'Hanricks has come back after four months, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so I, I've gotten first. I'm, I'm not forget this guy, Dan Mooney, in Chicago, Illinois. We're doing Fuente Ovejuna, that great Lopo de Vega play, which was a great play. And I was playing Mango, a huge fat character, which I, of course, wasn't right for, and they made me do, and I had the best time of my life doing it. And I'm um, playing Mango, and Dan Mooney was playing the evil sergeant who gets killed by the townspeople of Fuente Ibejuna. And, uh, and he turned me at rehearsal, and he went, can you believe we get paid for this? <laughs> he was a guy from Milwaukee who came down and did plays in Chicago, and he was just so chuffed to be able to do this and get paid. And I've never forgotten that. I thought, right. Right. Look at us. <laughs> no. We're in a rehearsal room. No, it's incredible. You're falling down. You're laughing. We're telling jokes. We're drinking right. coffee. We're telling stories. We're doing a little bit of work. You know, or we're doing yeah. a great play, and we're getting paid for it. It's better than sex. It's I mean, it's, it's just... <laughs> you know, yeah. If, if, if you can it do it on stage... Oh, if it wasn't for sense. the theater, I would never have gotten a date. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, people said, oh, look at him. He's funny. He's tall. He looks much taller on stage. <laughs> and now I'm surrounded by beautiful women all the time. And, and so I've given up nothing. I, I, <laughs> and family life, uh, children, the people, friendship. Can you uh, support these things and you give enough time? My, my, could you want to? Well, no, go ahead. My father said to me, Tova, my girl. I said, Dad, is this the way you talked when you were a baby? Did your mother say, lullaby and good night? My father was a litigator. He said, please the court, Your Honor. Anyway, she said, Tova, my girl, you want to live a long life? Dedicate yourself to a cause greater than yourself. So that's really what we do. It's what you do. It's what we do. We, we're storytellers, and we try to put it in the largest context we can. And when you get done with approbation, with the idea of whether you're loved or not loved or whatever some such myth is about actors, when you're done with that, the whole game is transformation. The whole game is when you don't need the do-do-do, you just back off and you, as you say, get into the mind and the neshama, the soul of another person, to bring them forth, to learn from them. And that's what we do. So we haven't, we have given up things the way you have given up things, by not choosing other things. Mm. I mean, I'm not great in math, so God knows I shouldn't have been a banker. I couldn't win piano concertos at National Music Camp. <laughs> I switched to plays with music, because I didn't mm. want to be, you know, a second runger. So I felt mm. I had a shot here. Uh, what did we give up? Maybe having more children. But I, 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 I'm in a marriage for a long time. I have a life's partner. Uh, for 26 years, we have two beautiful children. Ah, I gave up Broadway for 13 years. I did. Okay. My first child didn't learn to read in first grade, and I was working for Jerry, for Jerry Zacks, and lend me a tenor. He also got scarlet fever. Nothing much. I was about to kill myself. <laughs> anyway, so I said, oh, I get it. My Mother's Day card says, says, dearest mommy, thank you for waking me up in the morning. And there was nothing about reading to him at night or putting him to bed. And this child didn't learn to read. So I said, that's it. Because if you can't bring up your kids, you're nothing. And I stopped. Now he's in Harvard. I'm back on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. I mean, I did, I did give up uh, the long run for a long time. And took. Uh, and you, Mark? I mean, is it relationships or continuing presence in your parents' or friends' lives? If you're always on the road, you're always auditioning, you're always thinking about yourself and your instrument. Yes, I mean, that is what about the, the rest of us? I think that, you know, the whole <laughs> idea of sacrifice, the truth is, I'll never know. Because I made the choice that yeah. I made. Like, everybody makes the choices that they make every day in their lives to do things. 
And it's a commitment to yourself, and it's a commitment to what you believe in. I mean, would I like to see my family more? Yes, I would. Had I chosen another life, who knows the other things that would have been in a different balance. Right. You'd be the, sick of them. Well, okay, okay. or, you know, I guess th all you can do every day is wake up and try to do your best, honestly. You know, and maybe be aware of things that you have not been doing as well as you could or become more open to a communication that hasn't been there because you say you haven't had time, but there's always time. You know, I think mm -hmm. it also becomes as you, as you grow hopefully more mature, you begin to learn how to temper everything you're doing a little bit better, a little more gracefully, with a little more compassion for things outside of yourself because this can be such a self-involved, mm -hmm. um, you know, quest. Um, I wouldn't give it up for anything. I was meant to do this because I'm sitting here, you know, with these wonderful people, you know, and these wonderful people. Um, so I don't believe, I don't believe in the, t the word sacrifice as being a negative. Let's just put it that way. There are, are very positive compromises that come and great learning. Do the people around you have to sacrifice so that you all can do <laughs> what you want to do? Well, it's funny. I, I go to bed at 3 in the morning or 3.30 in the morning. That's my schedule. I get up at 10 or 11, except for today. And, um, <laughs> you know, because I, I, I get finished at 11. I live in Brooklyn. By the time I get home, it's 11.30, quarter to 12. I eat at 12.30 or 1. And then I go on the Internet and I read all that world's outrageous and I get really, really angry and I write emails to all my friends. <laughs> you should read this. You should read this. You should read this. You should read this. You know. But you can't see your friends because... But, and that's the weird thing. But it, you do give up some sense of normalcy. I mean, it's the weird idea about... You know, I have friends, a friend of mine, Linda, is in L.A. doing a play. I haven't seen her for four months. My other friend, Kaleem, moved to L.A. a year and a half ago. I think she's coming back. She might. She has an apartment in New York still. and I haven't seen her for a year and a half. My other best friend is a director who's living in Mexico some of the times and other places. I haven't seen him for a year. And so you kind of go, it's weird. Suddenly your friends are gone for a year, five months. And you see email and you call, but it's not the same thing. And so you kind of make new acquaintances a little bit. Uh, it's a, it, it can be a, not a lonely life, but you can really lose your circle. It's not so a lot attrition. of continuity. No, and no, your friends exactly. just have to understand, if they're really good friends, they will understand, hopefully, right. that you know, you're going to rehearsal, you drop out of sight. Right. I mean, it's just total yeah. immersion. Uh, so what happens if your friend is sick? What happens for the obligation of, of do, does not, is that part of the sacrifice that you say, I'm in rehearsal, I can't be there for my friends? Well, you I do what you can, of course, there. depending sure. on the seriousness of the Is this not a sacrifice that you all have to make, is not to be available sometimes well, because you're in rehearsal? You've got to yeah. stay I mean, alert. There's still a I mean, phone. There's still there's a, a phone. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, and there are extenuating circumstances, and you know, can always get away easy. for someone if it you have to. It is a challenge. Yeah. I mean, being in a relationship, for example, is definitely a challenge. These have been things that we, Good. myself and my relationship, we have been discussing. Um, because both of us have been on very, no, not in a bad way, yeah. but really it's just a matter of communication and learning. And we're on very different, you know, uh, we're on very different um, schedules right now. Like, for instance, I have to go to a rehearsal right after this, then go to the show, so thankfully she's going to walk my dog for me. And that's really cool, and we actually help each other that way, you know. Um, but. And we'll leave each other little notes and things like that. We make the, the, the very conscious attempt to communicate in every form we can. I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of the phone because I just don't like being able to talk to somebody without really seeing them. So we're like doing a lot of email now.
because mm. you can put your idea clearly together and then she can read it when she has time. We don't feel pressured mm -hmm. to have to call even if we have nothing to necessarily say. And you know, I, I think that you just, you find those lines of communication between each other. And like with mm -hmm. my family, you know, my mom used to get really, she would leave me messages my Jewish mother. She would call me and literally say, hello, Mark, it's your mother, reminding you, you have one. Click. <laughs> we you should know. get the mothers on stage here. They would tell us what the But it's interesting. And she did, you know, it's just, it's, just, it's just the guilt thing, which is fine. I would listen to it. It would make me laugh. But then you find a communication to where now she doesn't hear from me for, you know, even a week. She's just, I'm just calling to say hi. I just want to hear your voice, and I wanted you to hear mine. Things are okay here. Give us a call when you have time. And it's cool. It's like, but like yeah, you said. Yeah, a lot of you are on the road, too. I mean, well, not always it. on Broadway. I mean, I mean, I wish you always were, but you probably are all over the country. That's one thing that I love about hotels. this life. I mean, it's oh. a curse and a blessing both. Yeah. But like Rebecca was saying, she could have, you know, stayed home and been married to a wife. I feel like I, I could have, you know, <laughs> been married to a dentist in San Bernardino and have 2.5 children. It probably would have been fine, but I don't think so. Um, but, you know, it's just the variety of this life is so, I mean, we don't have any continuity, but on the other hand, every day is different. I mean, sometimes we're, you know, staying up until 3 in the morning and doing eight performances a week on Broadway and sleeping till 11. Sometimes we have to be up at 4 o'clock in the morning for film or television and we go to bed at 9 o'clock. It's just, it's wild. I mean, I love that. I would hate having a job where I knew that I had to go every day all day long and sit under a fluorescent light and know that I had two weeks off at Christmas. I think I would be in a padded room by now. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree. What, no. ha what happens when you don't get any jobs? Oh, well, uh, that's everybody most in of depression the time. Then? Yes, that's I mean, the majority of I mean, because those of us who just yeah. went to the job, we didn't have this, suddenly there is no job. No, and you're right. like, you know, suddenly you are Alone you are, and you're at it's home. What do you all do? It's such that, a feast or famine. That's why they've syndrome. invented alcohol. is a kind of consistency too, and uh, yeah, you have to be a gambler. Of, uh, you have to be a gambler. <laughs> a gambler. Okay. There's no, there's no, there's no net. No, there's no, no net. net. None. But then there's Ever. the other side of it too, where you never give yourself a break because yeah. there's that desire to want to work and there's the other side of it where you feel like you've got to get that next job because well, when am I going to work again? Yeah. Oh, right, and then course. you find yourself, if, I mean, four years later going, I need a break. I need a day. <laughs> I need <laughs> a week. My favorite two actor God. jokes are, how do you, you want to hear an actor complain? Give him a job. Yeah. <laughs> the other one is you want a job, buy a plane ticket. Buy a plane ticket. You know, the minute you buy a plane ticket to go oh, somewhere, oh, you get a call. Starting January twelfth, right. two weeks ago. I I just bought a plane ticket. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I have a, a story just in terms of, of how you don't know what's gonna happen to you the next day and how you have to be your own best friend in a way. I was sick with the politics of the business and I went down to Florida and I found three local guys in Florida and I wanted to start a uh, not-for-profit theater. I figured I'm going to be the, you know, the man who makes the decisions around here. And I realized that uh, things in Florida were a little too horizontal for me. And uh, I, I was very lost and I came back to the city. And they were doing a production of Guys and Dolls. And my friend Nathan Lane was in it. And uh, I, I wanted to to play Nathan Detroit. It was a role I always wanted to play. Sam Levine, was, who originated the role, was a mentor. And I went in and I auditioned for it, and I was feeling not good about myself. And I must have given a very lousy audition, and Jerry Zachs, who I had never worked with up until that point, he didn't want to hire me. Uh, so Nathan Lane 
said to Jerry, he said, hi, Lewis. He said, he, you know, he, I don't think he feels very good about himself at the time. Hire him. At any rate, he said, no, he wasn't good. He wasn't spontaneous. He wasn't good. So I, I was living with an actress by the name of Vicki Lewis at the time, and she came to see the show on uh, the, 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 the Broadway production of Guys and Dolls. This was for the national company. And she said, you blew it. You blew it. They wanted you. There was no other actors because everybody quit. <laughs> you were the only one, and you blew it. So I felt terrible, and I went into Riverside Park, and I must have smoked about three packs of cigarettes in about ten minutes, and I thought, boy, if you can't play Nathan Detroit, you can't do anything. What happened to you? You're 45 years old. You, had a, you, you were a comer, you know? And now, look at you. And I didn't know what to do with the next minute of my life. And it occurred to me that it was Saturday and that I had time to go and take a shower and then try to get a ticket to see the Broadway production of Guys and Dolls. And I did that. And I sat in the fourth row and I, I, I started to weep because I loved it so much. And all of a sudden I saw what the style of the piece was, how he had directed. This is another good lesson. Don't worry about stealing from other actors. Steal, steal, steal from the best. <laughs> so I sat there. Oh, you. No, can you wrap it up? Yes, after wrapping it up. Just that I didn't know what I was going to do with the next minute of my life. All of a sudden, I did something positive for myself. I got cast as Nathan Detroit, and for the last ten years, I've been a star. The American Theatre Wing Seminar of Working in the Theatre brought to you from the uh, Graduate Center of City University. Thank you so much for being with us, and thank you. You were all great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.